Together, turn together to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, ladies. Such a blessing to our hearts in preparing us for the Word of God. Thank you to everyone on any given Lord's Day. There are so many moving parts and things that are happening. The sound team, the projection team, those who practice faithfully all week long to help prepare us and lead us into the worship of the Lord. Thank you to each of you. Let's turn now to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17. And this morning we'll look into the text at a remarkable text. In fact, this text is one of the more difficult texts to preach in the fact that we, with limited human language, are desiring and wanting to describe the glory of Christ. And how can we do that? Well, we'll attempt to do that this morning. Look with me there, Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now notice here, verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. What's that? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Hear him, literally listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. Now, they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then, verse 13, the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, this is the word of the Lord. I've got a question for you this morning as we introduce Matthew chapter 17, as we introduce this text. And and here's the question I want us to consider as we embark upon this text, and it's this. What are you gazing at this morning? What is your, your focus upon? For each one of us, that question can be answered in a variety of ways. Some of us may be tempted to answer it in the sense of where, how old we are. The mile markers that we have either passed or the ones that are just up ahead that we're coming up to that we are longing for with great anticipation as we think about being human and experiencing life's gifts and joys that God has given to us. What are you looking at? Or what has your gaze or who has your attention? 
As we look at Matthew chapter 17 this morning, what we find is the central truth is that we become like what we look upon. There's a direct connection and there's a direct correlation to becoming like what we obsess about. We sometimes use in our common vernacular. They're obsessed with that goal or they're obsessed with that idea or they're consumed, if you will. Well, there is a direct connection between becoming like what we look upon. We become like what we behold and gaze upon. In fact, you could say it like this. Our gaze, what we focus on, our gaze affects our future. And here's the gravitas of this. It not only affects our future, but it affects those, the future of those who are under our stewarding care. There's some illustrations from literature that I don't often do, but I want to pull in today as I feel like it will help us on the on-ramp to the message. Maybe if I were to mention the name Narcissus, you would recognize it from classical Greek literature. As Ovid tells the story of Narcissus, Narcissus was a beautiful youth, handsome in every way, that longed for the love of his life. But as he began to walk by, weirdly and interestingly enough, one day, a pond, Narcissus came across a reflection of himself. He began to gaze upon that face that he did not make a connection to was his face. Narcissus just began to tabernacle, to use the language of the text, there. He camped out there. He did not eat. He did not drink. He longed, as weird as it sounds, he longed for the image that he saw in the water. And ultimately, he died. He perished. Now, you may be wondering, now, why does that sound familiar, Narcissus? Well, we have our term today called narcissism. We would call someone who is self-absorbed, we would say that person is, they're narcissistic. You follow? We would say they're consumed. Well, what is narcissistic? We would say they're consumed with self. We become like what we gaze upon. And the point of that is when we become consumed with self, we become the ugliest of creatures until our dying day. There's another story written by Nathaniel Hawthorne in American literature. It's entitled, it's a short story entitled The Great Stone Face. It's a story about a mountain that overlooks a village in New England. And on this mountain was etched in the stone the face of a man. The town began to create a story, a legend, that one day a man with that face would come and visit the village. And he would be a blessing and a comfort, and a guide, a shepherd to all the villagers. In that village was a little boy named Ernest, and Ernest grew up hearing this legend. And he, along with everyone else, began to long for this man, in a sense, this savior, this person who would bless the people. He began to long for this man who would come. In fact, Ernest so longed for that that he would gaze continually at the great stone face, studying the nuances and the contours and contemplating all the ways that a man could bring blessing to that village. Every once in a while, rumors and circulations would happen when a stranger would come into town that it's possible that this person might be that person, but soon people would quickly recognize that, no, the stranger or that individual, they were not the one. As Ernest grew older, he began to grow in love for the village that he was a part of. 
And he became known for his care and wisdom and concern for the villagers. As an old man who was gray-haired, as Nathaniel Hawthorne tells it, wrinkled in the face, walking through the town, one day a little boy ran up to him, and in the background was the great stone face. And as the little boy saw the great stone face and he saw Ernest, elderly Ernest's face, he announced to the town, Behold, behold, Ernest himself is in the likeness of the great stone face. The moral of Nathaniel Hawthorne's story is that Ernest had become like the one that he beheld. Now, all analogies and stories have their limitations. We get that. As we direct our attention to the text, we pick up on a theme that we become like what we gaze upon. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it quickly. Paul says to the church at Corinth, to us as disciples of Christ, Paul says this. He says, but we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, what? The glory of the Lord. We are being transformed. Who's we? The church, the bride, the redeemed. As we behold with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Church, it is a beautiful thing to see us being transformed into the image of Christ. And how is it that week after week, Month after month, here a little, there a little, we can see the beauty of Christ upon us as His people. Well, how is it? Well, according to Paul, it's by the Spirit of the Lord, through the precious Word of God. Now, as we come back to Matthew chapter 17, picking up on this theme, we recognize what these authors are telling us. One divine inspired author in Paul, Greek poet Ovid, American writer Nathaniel Hawthorne. The more we study someone, the more we listen to someone, the more we watch someone, there is an inevitable result. We begin to emulate them. We begin to embody them. We begin to look like them. And as disciples of Jesus, Matthew is showing us the more we behold Christ, the more we become like, like Him. And may it be so. May the Lord do this in us and remind us of this to fix our eyes, as the writer and author of Hebrews says, to fix them upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, there are monumental texts in Scripture that pull back the curtain and show us the glory of God. Texts like Isaiah chapter 6, Exodus 33, which we saw, heard, read this morning. Revelation 4, verse 11, which I read just a moment ago. The song of the seraphim around the throne even now. Here in our text, we see the glory of Christ. Glory is the theme of this text. Matthew here in Matthew 17, 1 is coloring in the lines. He is filling in the picture of this passage which began in chapter 16. Last week where Jesus announces to his disciples that judgment is on its way. The very one who was offered as a sacrifice for sin is the one who is coming in glory and in judgment to all those who reject that sacrifice. He is now as Savior. He is coming, though, to judge the entire world. Believers for stewardship, 
in accordance to his will, unbelievers, the judgment of their rejection of Christ and their sin. Notice chapter 16, verse 27, just to bridge the connection of our two passages here. Chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Surely I say to you that there are some standing, Jesus is saying in this moment, standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. A most unusual statement and a most unusual text. And many people are split and disagreed on just what all is meant here as we think about what is Jesus saying, that there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. Well, I believe it. we just keep reading as we did, go right into Matthew chapter 17, we see the fulfillment of this text. And I believe that's what we're seeing here as Matthew lets us know right off the, the cuff that in six days after this, after six days, Jesus took... Verse 1, Peter, James, and John. And I believe he's literally fulfilling what he is saying here in the context of Matthew 16, moving into Matthew chapter 17. Now, notice with me, first of all, the glorious privilege in verse 1 that is experienced not by all the disciples, but by a few key disciples. Number one, the glorious privilege, verse 1. Now, after six days, this is the connecting phrase, from that judgment text that Jesus says, the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother, and He led them up in a high mountain by themselves. The, the, the phrase, the place, where are they at, the high mountain, is undetermined. Scripture does not make that clear. Some say it's Mount Hermon. Some say Mount Tabor. But evidently, the place is not important, but the privilege is. That's what we see. There, there is a glorious privilege here, point number one, and that is afforded to and experienced by Peter, James, and John. Now, it, it's a reminder to us that Jesus has called his disciples. Notice here, obvious statement, but he has hand-selected the men who are the 12 disciples, the apostles. He's chosen them. He's, he says this, John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, Peter, uh, Matthew, you did not choose me. John, you did not choose me. Notice Matthew 15, verse 16. I chose you and I appointed you. We know this. And within his inner circle, within the inner circle of the disciples, there is still even an inner ring of some of these men who Jesus is closer to than even the others. It's just a fact. It's in the text. This is the Sovereignty of God, working out His purposes and His will. It's a reminder to us that God calls not only to salvation, but He calls to service. And in that call to service, there are privileges and things afforded to unworthy men that are not afforded to every man. Matthew 9, verse 9, we saw previously where Jesus called Matthew. Matthew was at the collector's table, the tax collector table, the money-changing table, and he's there doing his business and his work, and Jesus comes along and says, Matthew, you robber of your fellow men, you corrupt man, you cheat your exorbitant inflation of taxes to pad your own pocket and to extort your fellow countrymen, Matthew, you stop all that. 
and you can follow me. See, Matthew is not special. Matthew, a disciple? Yes. Matthew, saved in Christ? Yes. Matthew, special? Yes and no. Only by the sovereign grace of God. Special, not in the sense of why he deserves salvation, but special in that he is afforded a privilege to serve and be trained along with Christ. Friends, what, what a privilege. But Matthew did not get this privilege. And so I just paused to, to break this down because it's a classic text to draw this out, that in the gospel records, it's clear that there are times that Jesus affords special privileges to Peter only, to Peter, James, and John, then to all the disciples. It's a reminder to us that Christ, Matthew chapter 4, 19, calls out to Peter and Andrew, his brother, and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here's the key. Here's the point. Christ calls to salvation. Christ also calls to service in particular ministry. And within his distinct calls, there are sovereign privileges that he ordains for us. There's so much for us to consider in just this first point. I want us to know, Grace, as just shepherds and sheep, that God is not equal with all of us, but he is completely fair. In our Sunday school class this morning, we were considering the sovereignty of God and his administration. And we said, okay, wait a second. What are some ways that this is played out in our everyday world? And one brother said, Tiger Woods. And we laughed and said, yes, we'll never be as gifted to play the game as the game of golf as Tiger Woods. This is obvious. This is, we see this in our everyday realm. But we're talking about not just in the physical realm and in the giftings realm. We're talking about in the serving of Christ realm, in the spiritual realm, in the realm of life. What a privilege it is just to know Christ. But friends, here in this text, what we see is that Peter, James, and John are afforded a privilege that is unlike any other privilege that men were able to see and to taste and to know. They were able to experience some moments of intimacy with Christ, opportunities to witness the glory of Christ that not all the disciples received. Here's some examples quickly. Mark 5, 37. Peter, James, and John were present at the healing and the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Mark 5, 37. He permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. In Matthew 26, verse 36, these men accompanied him to the Garden of Gethsemane and saw the innermost sanctum of what the relationship was like, view John 17, John chapter 17, the whole chapter, to see what this intimate, precious moment was between Christ and his Father. These men are privileged to see some of the most precious moments in the earthly sojourning of Christ. Number one, the glorious privilege. It's a reminder to all of us that God is gracious and He's kind. He's all of our shepherds. He will lead us. He will feed us. He will guide us. But the opportunities that come our way are not all the same. And so here's just a pastoral application for us as a church. We have to so guard our hearts. As we bow to the administration of God's sovereignty in our lives, we don't all look the same. We don't all come from the same families and have the same places and the same circumstances. We don't all have the same trials. And it is not wise for us to compare ourselves by ourselves. By the way, this is what Paul wants the church at Corinth to know. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. He reminds the church, because that's exactly what's happening. 
And he reminds the church, 2 Corinthians 10, 12, we do not dare class ourselves or compare ourselves by ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and they comparing themselves by themselves. Just notice this helpful counseling phrase, are not wise. Now, there's not anyone in this room who's removed from this be on guard warning. Because as we mentioned last week, our whole world is geared and wired to cause us to be discontent with our lives. Everything is. Television, marketing, media, you get it. We're not going to go down that road. But friends, as we look at this privilege afforded to these men, let's just hit pause and make application. And let's ask the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for your kindness of salvation. Thank you for opportunities for service. And thank you for placing me where you have. And Lord, when the whisper, that satanic whisper of Lucifer that began in his own heart back in the garden begins to come into my ear and begin to tell me, as he told Eve, that God is not good to you, that God has dealt you a difficult lot. Look at, look at them. Look, why do they get to do that and you don't? Why do they get to have that and you don't? Why do, in all those whispers of Satan, why is life seemingly easy for them and life so hard for me? In those questions, we begin to question the goodness of God. We begin to question the integrity of God. We begin to question the heart of God. And so, we see here that these men are afforded. Before we move on, I just want to take this one step further. Notice how maybe the disciples, Scripture doesn't tell us, wonder and grumble sometimes. Why does Peter, the one who Jesus just said, get behind me, Satan, just a few verses ago, why does he get to do this? Let's make clear, it's nothing good and special in Peter, James, or John. These are the guys, Peter, who Jesus has said, get behind me, Satan. James and John are the brothers who put their mother up to really speak a word to Jesus to say, can we sit at the right hand and the left hand in your coming kingdom? These are those guys. So let's just take off the table that they are better than everybody else, or there's just something a little bit more winsome and, and beautiful or gifted or whatever. None of those things are, are the case. But notice how no one says, why does Peter get to die crucified upside down and I don't? Why does John get to be the first apostle murdered with Herod by the sword? And I don't. Why does, you get the idea. We could walk through all the apostles' deaths. I just want to say this, friends, just bow to God's gracious sovereignty and providence in our lives. Just say, Lord, you have ordained my steps. You have given me my lot and the steps of a good man. Your word says are, are ordered by the Lord. Father, all glory, honor, and praise be to you. If you, O oh God, were to give me what I do deserve, Father, I would be in hell forever. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that James, now the time of Herod, the king stretched out his hand to harass the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to see Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so he arrested Peter and he put him in prison. John tradition tells us in Scripture and the book of Revelation and other passages tells us that multiple attempts were made to kill John and God would not allow him to die. One tradition says he was put into a barrel of oil and they tried to burn him alive and yet nothing was successful. So he was just banished to the Isle of Patmos. God had more things in store for John. So number one, 
the glorious privilege. Again, notice who's recording this. It's Matthew. We don't get any hint from Matthew why these guys. Matthew is serving God's will for him. He's rejoicing with them. He's recording this for us, this glorious privilege that these men experience. Verse 28 tells us that there were some standing there. And this is Peter, James, and John. And as they're writing this, experiencing this transfigured glory of Christ, this experience for Peter and John particularly will forever mark their ministries. Both bring these back up in their epistles and in their writings. Peter brings this back up in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. When Peter says to the church, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What's Peter talking about? Well, not just his sojourning among us, not just his miracles, not just his existence. He's referring also all those things, but he's referring to the transfiguration. He says, we were eyewitnesses of the transfigured Christ. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory when God said, this is, Peter says, quotation, God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard his voice, which came from heaven, and when we were with him in the holy mountain. So here's a question. Why was Peter so emboldened for Christ? Now, there's a topographical emotional journey, no doubt, in Peter's discipleship. In his worst days are yet still ahead. We get that. But how can Peter stand in the Spirit's power on the day of Pentecost and preach as he preaches? Well, one of those reasons why, he's not only seen the resurrected Christ, but he saw the transfigured Christ. And he saw the transfigured Christ, and he saw the resurrected Christ, and he saw the ascended Christ. And friends, Peter put it all together by God's grace and by God's Spirit. Hear the language of John quickly. John 1, verse 1, John 1, 14 in the Gospel of John. John's writing to the church and he says this, The Word became flesh, Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. What glory? This, Matthew 17, 1. This transfigured glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. First John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Notice here, which we have seen with our eyes that he's talking about the person of Christ we've seen him but we've seen his glory our eyes have seen him we looked upon our hands have handled him concerning the word of life that life was manifested we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us John goes on verse 4 to say in these things I write unto you so that your joy may be full church listen this is a glorious privilege for these men their their joy is full. Why? Because they know Christ in this extraordinary, amazing way. Number two, the glorious perception. Verse two, and he was, he was transfigured. Christ was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. I'm going to read that again. Read it with me. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. This is one of those verses that you meditate on, you read it, and you read it, and you marinate in it, and you say, Lord, give me light, give me heat. Well, friends, I'm just going to tell you, 
I don't know how to explain this to us here this morning any more than what the text in Scripture reveals to us. This is one of those texts that we can try to explain, but we can't understand. Or as a teacher sometimes says, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. Well, here's the problem. I can't quite explain it to you, <laughs> other than just taking it at its surface level. Here, the Holy Spirit, in so few economy of words, tells us about this glorious reality. This is a, a mountaintop experience, literally. Here, as Jesus is transfigured before his disciples, his face is like the sun. Here, notice this language, similes and metaphors. His face is, is like this. There's no other language for it. So look up. Look at the, the sun. His clothes became like this, as white as the light. It's hard to conceive exactly what it was that they saw. But the text simply says, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. What does that mean? Well, let's just take the phrase, like the sun. What does the sun do to me and you when we get out in its blazing glory? We stand in it unprotected over a period of time. We can put it like this. There are visible effects of it, right? Someone says, you take off your glasses. You've got the tan line right here. Ah, I see you've been in the sun. The sun makes an imprint. It, it shines. It burns. We talk about sunburns. The sun chars our presence. The sun affects us it literally will cause us if we try to take in its glory in its unabated sense we just say i don't need these glasses i'm i'm a i'm a man so we turn in the full heat of the day and the full glory and we just stare at it well i wouldn't encourage you to do that too long uh, don't do that very long or you'll you'll never see again the sun and its power has visible effects and so what the holy spirit wants us to know is that the transfigured christ was like that you go outside right now and behold the full sun in this glory, and it's not even the same, but it was like that. The text shows us that they turned away. They couldn't handle it. Other gospel records tell us they passed out. They literally were unconscious. The text here says that he was transfigured before them. The root word here, transfigured, is where we get our word metamorphosis in the English. You know what this is. This is a change visible to others. This is where a caterpillar becomes a, a butterfly. Or at least this is the, what the meaning of how we use this word. So what the disciples witness here is a perception of the glorious reality of the person of Christ. That is to say, His divine, unabated glory shone through. And you say, how? We don't know how. We don't know whether his physical person just completely disappeared for a moment. How can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Did he, did he pull up the skin of his flesh and his light and his intrinsic inner glory, the part that is fully God? Did it just shine forth? We don't know. We just are told Christ, verse 2, was transfigured, transformed before them. This word, by the way, is the same word that Paul used in the passage I read just a few moments ago, 2 Corinthians 3.18, when he describes how we are transformed into the image of Christ. In both instances, the word refers to a change of form. One of the closest things we have to make a connection to is Exodus 33, 34, where Moses said before the Lord, Lord, 
show me your glory. By the way, have we ever asked God for that? Is that my desire? Is that your desire? Is that our desire as a church? Oh God, would you show me, would you show us your glory? I hope so. I hope Moses isn't the only one asking that question. In that passage, Christ, or excuse me, God says, you cannot handle my glory. But I will afford you, God, in an anthropomorphic type of way, using human language to help us to understand, said, I will turn in the hinder parts, that those anthropomorphic terms here, the parts of my being that create the backwards shadow, I will let my shadow pass over you, you will get a glimpse of my glory. And Scripture does not tell us what happened to Moses in that moment, in that experience, but Scripture does tell us that when the people of God, when the children of Israel perceived Moses coming off the mountain, he shone like the sun. He had been, just like people say, you've been outside fishing, haven't you? We see the effects of the sun upon your physical person. Whatever this is, it caused Moses to shine. Not to be burned, but to shine. His face shone like the sun. Friends, this is, this is powerful. This is amazing. Now, why did Jesus do this? What is the point of this moment? What is the point of the transfiguration? What is he teaching us? Is it to be entertained? Is it to do cool tricks for his disciples? Here's the answer. It's to drive home the fact that he is God. It's to remind his disciples that everything he is saying, they can take to the bank. His disciples are spiritual children. They are like little children. Things are going over their head. And here is a divine object lesson, a divine moment that says, I am the Son of God. And he be, reveals his glory. Just go back to verse 21 with me quickly. Just kind of take in the context here again. Why is Jesus revealing his glory? Think about it again in light of the connection here of the passage, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. If you remember from that passage, they check out at the item of suffer many things. They don't get it. They don't understand then he gives them that call, verse 24. He says to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of God coming in His kingdom. Now we have the transfigured Christ. What is Jesus telling them? Here's my word, and here's you can take it to the bank. It will be like this. The future is like this. Revelation 1, 2, 3, and 4, where Christ is described as the Lamb will be our light. 
Daniel chapter 11, and they shall be like the stars. Who? The church, the people, those who are in his kingdom. They shall be like the stars that shine forever and ever. Why will we, why will the they, why will we shine forever and ever? Because we are in him. We will be like him. Who's him? Matthew 17, 2. He who shines. Here is the transfigured Christ. This is his righteousness. This is his glory. Verse 2, his Face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as a light. But I'm afraid maybe you're still not getting it. And here's why. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, the disciples are having trouble with what they're hearing and what they're seeing. And maybe Isaiah can help us here. Isaiah 53, verse 2, reminds us this prophet, this coming Messiah, when he comes, he has no form or Comeliness, that means physical giftings, beauty, handsomeness. There is no features about him. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no, notice there, beauty that we should even desire him. That is to say, if you did not know who Jesus was, he would walk by you in his earthly appearance and never gather a second look. In other words, this is not the Jesus, or excuse me, this is not the Messiah they would have chosen. But this is the Son of God that God has sent. And so this moment cannot come too soon. This moment cannot be more on time as the disciples are driven home under the fact they understand that Jesus is who He says He is. That there be no more John the Baptist moments. Are you the Christ or do we look for another? Turn with me just briefly to Philippians chapter 2. Just ever so quickly, we'll go to Philippians chapter 2. In view in light of this transfigured Christ, Philippians chapter 2, as think now that we've established the fact that Christ is shining in all his glory, hear Philippians chapter 2 again, afresh, quickly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what mind was that? Who, verse 6, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. Notice here the language. Taking the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. What was that likeness like? The most common, the most mundane, the most frail. Listen, friends, we don't even understand this passage. I'm going to tell you why. Because it would be like trying to tell us, imagine... You created some claymation feature, figure. You came up with your own little creation, and then you became that. And friends, we would still not have words to describe how God became a man. The humility. The, it, it, we don't have a capacity to understand what God has done in sending His Son to us, to live as us, to be as us, to live the life we're supposed to live and cannot live. Friends, we, we, we can't even fathom who made himself of no reputation, you would think if this was us, we would come as the strongest God-man. We would come as the most handsome God-man. We would come with like the gods we create in Marvel Comics and as the Greeks created their gods and as the Romans created their gods, we would come up with these heinous, but yet these, these creatures that are just super abundant and these skills and all these things, but God's ways are not our ways. Jesus set all that aside. And he comes at the Father's discretion and will and way 
who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Not a king, not a potentate, but as a carpenter in human form, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, the transfigured Christ who just for a glimpse of a moment reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John, who, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1 verse 3, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Well, number one, the glorious privilege. Number two, the glorious perception. Number three, the glorious testimony. Notice with me verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, I thought this scene was already unbelievable. Now, we have something on another level of just, wow. Verse 3, and behold, Moses, yes, that Moses, and Elijah, yes, that Elijah, who appeared to them talking with him. So in other words, they are now able to see the glorious transfigured Christ. And now they see Moses and Elijah, they're having a conversation with Christ. And Peter just speaks up, instead of just taking it in and wondering what in the world is going on, and Lord, what do you have us to learn from this, and maybe let me do that in silence and prayer, Peter blasts out and says to me what is maybe the understatement of the century, Lord, it's good for us to be here. It just, yeah, no doubt, Peter. You're not trying to hate on him, you're not trying to make fun of him, but that sounds like such a southern phrase, doesn't it? Lord, it's good for us to be here. Peter. Barney, just stop. It just sounds like the ultimate, comicable, just stop. Just don't mess up the moment. Lord, it's good for us to be here. Now, we're done making fun of him. He's sincere. He, he means what he's saying. Notice here, he means well. <laughs> it's a reminder to us that even in our very best efforts, we blow it sometimes, right? Notice what he says. He says, if you wish... Let us make here three tabernacles, temporary dwellings, booths, tents. It's not just 100% certain exactly the word, but the idea from the language of the children of Israel, the Old Testament is the idea of booths coming into a temporary place to just sit here and stay a while, to dwell for a few days. One for you, Peter says. Now notice, he's, he's attempting to show respect and honor, but he's not getting it. He's putting this transfigured Christ on the same level as Moses, here he's thinking like a typical Jew. We are of our father, you know, Moses. We are of uh, Elijah. We are of Abraham. He's not thinking correctly. He's putting all Jesus in line in sequence with the great prophets of the Old Testament. Here, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Here, the text shows us that the disciples are able to see and perceive a really rare pairing of Moses and Elijah together. This is not often seen as we think about prophets in the Old Testament being referred to, Moses and Elijah together. Moses, who represents the law of God, that man that God raised up, you know, to deliver the law to Israel. And where was that, by the way, Exodus 33, on a mountaintop, Mount Sinai. Elijah here represents the voice of the prophets and both together, in a sense, represent Jesus as talking to Moses, the lawgiver, 
Elijah, the prophet of prophets. Here they represent the law and the prophets both together. In fact, both of these men were men of God in times of transition. Moses to introduce the covenant. Elijah to work for renewed obedience to that covenant. Both experienced in their ministries a vision of God's glory. Moses, as we refer to at Mount Sinai. Elijah at Mount Horeb. Both now witness Jesus' glory as he is transfigured before them. And they are talking with him. Friends, it's just a reminder to us that Jesus is the hero of the story. It's not Moses. It's not Elijah. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is the true and better Elijah. Now this is seen not only in their lives and roles, but it's also seen in their deaths and in their conclusions. If you remember, Moses Moses died. In the Old Testament, we simply are told that Moses was carried off by the Lord to die with his strength unabated, with his eyes full capacity as an old man, but obviously, as we know the context, one who sinned against the Lord and was not able to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. He died. How do we know that? That text doesn't tell us, but if you remember, Jude says that the body of Moses was contended for. Jude makes reference to that. But Elijah, not so. Remember, Elijah was translated. Here in Jesus, we see the true and better Moses and the true and better Elijah. Jesus will die like Moses, and Jesus will be translated like Elijah. Or better put, Elijah like Jesus, Moses like Jesus. Now we have a question here. The text here tells us that the disciples see this transfigured Christ. Mark gives us more detail. Luke gives us a little bit more detail. Mark, what are they talking about? Well, Mark says they're talking about the cross. That's the theme of this section. Jesus is fixing his face like a flint towards the cross. Luke, in Luke 9.30, it says, Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke, notice here, of his death, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Listen, we don't know what all the Old Testament saints knew. But we know they knew enough to know that God would send a Messiah that he would send a redeemer, that he would send a lamb that was the lamb above every other lambs that would be the sacrifice for their sins. They looked forward to that day. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that the gospel was preached unto Abraham and he believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I have no doubt that a part of this conversation, not adding anything to Luke, that they're just getting further details about the redemptive plan and program and how Jesus consummates all of it. Oh, to be a part of that, amen? To be able to sit there and listen, to be able to hear, but yet we have the precious word of God who tells us all that we need to know for life and godliness. Luke again says they were talking about his death. Luke 9 verse 30, they spoke of his death, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word death in Luke's account is the same word that the Greeks use for exodus, Referring to the Exodus as well of the Old Testament. That's not to be missed here. The first Moses was sent to deliver his people from slavery. But the second, true and better Moses, is sent to deliver his people from their sin. Matthew one twenty one. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Here you have the first Moses and here you have the true and better Moses. And both are come to deliver their people. Here we see that the first Exodus delivered God's people from the bondage of Pharaoh. 
But the greater and final exodus happened as the Son of God went to the cross to liberate His people from the slavery of their sin. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to free us from our sin. Again, I quoted Matthew 1, 21. Hear the gospel of Christ. What are they talking about? They're talking about His death. How Jesus has come to save His people past, present, and future, from their sins. What sin? Justifying them from the penalty of their sin. Sanctifying them from the power of sin. It's broken and His Spirit is given to them and He's shaping them. As Paul says, we behold His glory as a veil, as an unveiled face. We're growing in His image. That's called sanctification by the precious and powerful Word of God. Finally and fully in the future, He will save us from the presence of sin in our, in our glorification. Notice that these men, Elijah and Moses, they're recognizable. They're relational. So many people have concerns about their loved ones who've gone on to glory. Friends, just look at this text as in a sense of comfort. Those who are in Christ, those who were saved by faith in Christ, by His grace alone. This is a comforting text for us. These men are relational, recognizable. The text doesn't tell us how the disciples knew that they were Moses and Elijah. It's not like they'd ever seen them. But they, it was given to them. It's a glorious testimony by Moses and Elijah that they are known and conversations are had and that it gives us a taste and a, a sense of knowing that we will both know and be known as we are both here, but in a glorified sense in the future. We often wonder about our spouses who may go on ahead of us or those who have preceded us in death. Will they know me? We ask those types of questions. Death is that great, uh, great mystery here, take comfort from the text that these men are known and relational, that there is fellowship that is taking place as they fellowship with Christ. Here, as we look into this text, Jesus' transfiguration, we see that Jesus himself and his glory unveils the full presence of God. There is so much Old Testament language of the cloud and the overshadowing that we could pull out that we will not have time to pull out today. But what's beautiful here in this text is that Jesus, or excuse me, that God the Father speaks for the second time as his son's glory, unique glory, is on full display. In fact, we see that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus was baptized, that the, God the Father speaks from heaven in that special moment, directing attention to the Son when he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here in this passage, for the second time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is given in all of the radiant glory that is His. Jesus reflects God's glory in that God the Father speaks to Him and interrupts Peter. Notice what Peter is saying here in our text. Peter offers up his suggestion. While he was at verse 4, he says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Notice verse 5. And while he was still speaking, he is interrupted by God the Father. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, signifying the presence of the Father. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Friends, here we have imperfect earthly witnesses to the transfigured Christ. But now here we have the Father's testimony. 
Here you have no greater witness than that of the Father who says, this is my glorious, beloved Son. Listen to Him. Obey His word. Hear what He has to say. When He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man can come to the Father except by me. Hear Him. Obey Him. Believe Him. Rest in Him. When He tells you, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Hear the testimony of the Word of God this morning. If you're wondering if Jesus is who He says He is, hear the Father say, listen to Him. Obey Him here in verse 5. Lastly, our last point this morning, number four, is the glorious comfort that Christ gives. The glorious comfort that Christ gives. Notice here with me, verse 6. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Again, the other gospel records to also add to this, that they lost, they're out of it. They lost consciousness. They're terrified. Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Here the disciples see the lowly Christ. Isaiah 53, 2, the one who has no beauty or glory, that we should look at him a second time. Imagine this moment. Life-changing. Emboldening. In fact, we'd say it like this. How on earth could Peter ever mess up again? Surely if we are able to witness such a moment as this, Surely we would be the Christian of every Christian. Surely there would be a zeal in us that would preach the gospel and never have a fear of man and never have a worry, never have an anxiety. Surely we would never melt in the moment. Well, we know the rest of the story, don't we? In multiple ways. There's more chapters to this story, we'll put it like that. Well, friends, time does not allow us to go to the epistle of Peter, but Peter brings this back again to the church. And Peter gives us this encouragement and this exhortation. And this is the exhortation Peter gives. He says, we who saw his transfigured glory, he wants the church to know, have the same comfort in Christ. What is that comfort? Well, here in this comfort, it's the presence of Christ. He touched them. Verse 7, Jesus came and touched them. He said, arise and do not be afraid. And they saw no one but, but Jesus only. What is that comfort for us? Well, it, it is Jesus. Don't miss that. But Peter wants us to know that we have a more sure word. Now listen here, lest you think I'm twisting reality. Peter wants you to know this morning that you have a more sure word than the transfigured Christ that he saw in that experience, the experience that he saw. It's not to take away from the transfiguration. What Peter wants you to know says, listen, you may not have been able to experience what I saw, but don't think you've been robbed. Peter says to the church, you have a more sure word of prophecy. He elevates scripture and says, listen, you can take this to the bank. I, we, who saw the transfigured Christ, I'm communicating to you the very comfort of the words of God. Rest on his word. It will lead you. It will guide you. It will change you. And that's what we come to. Now, let's conclude by turning this morning. Final Final point, it's not even a point, but it's just a closing verse, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This word, metamorphosis, Christ 
was literally transfigured in their presence. This same word is used again, and I feel like this is the Holy Spirit's application for us this morning, picking up on what Peter says as he makes reference to the transfiguration in his ministry. Wow, that's great, Legrand. Thank you for reminding us of the gospel. Thank you for reminding us that Moses is not the ultimate Savior, but that Jesus is the true and better Moses. And Elijah was great, but Jesus is better. But how does this help me today? Well, that's enough. (laughs) That's, That's enough. Look to Jesus and rest in him completely. But go to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and notice with me quickly, Paul writes to the church, and he says, I implore you, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your, this is reasonable. It's not asking too much. This is your reasonable service. Now notice here, verse 2, do not be pushed into the mold. Do not be conformed, literally taken and forced into the mold of this world's pressured value system. Do not be conformed, pushed through the template. The, imagine Play-Doh in a stencil. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Metamorphosis. Be renewed. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How do we do that? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be transformed by the gospel of Christ. Be transformed. Be renewed by the word of God. How do we do that? We offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord by his grace, by the enabling of his spirit. And he, as Paul says, as we behold his glory in a glass darkly in this earthly experience as his spirit is our comforter and leads us into the truth friends we are renewed day by day by resting in his finished work the gospel and being sanctified and transformed in our thinking by his word remember the opening question what are we gazing upon we will become like whatever we focus on so let me exhort us as the church as we depart this morning to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ by faith through his word. And may he help us to grow in the beauty of the Lord. May the beauty of our Lord shine upon us. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, that is the desire of our heart. Less of us and more of you. John 3 Verse 30, behold the Lamb of God, I must decrease, He must increase. Father, would there be more increasing of You in our life as a result of our faith in You, keeping our eyes fixed upon You and You alone, and our eyes not focused on ourselves. Robert Murray McShane said, for every look itself, take ten looks at Christ. Father, help us to stay focused upon you. We need you. We are desperate for you. Now, the needs here this morning are multifaceted, but you're the answer to every one. So, Father, we rest in your gospel. We rest in the surety of your word. We pray that you would bless your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.